0: This episode contains depictions of violence that some may find triggering or disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and thank you so much for your patience. I know I've been promising this episode for a while now, but as most of you know, I've been dealing with a lot of personal stuff, Um, mainly a lot of depression. (laughs) Not that that's something to laugh at, but I've been needing to put myself first. Now that I'm in a better place, it's time to get creepy. This story is called, I Investigate Disturbing Cases, Here Are My Stories, The Hermit. There's a famous quote by Robert Evans. There are three sides to a story. Yours, mine, and the truth. In my line of work, you come to realize that the truth is rarely an objective perspective. For example, a bloody fight is the result of an argument. One side claims self-defense, the other claims a brutal attack. A camera shows a man striking another in the heat of the moment. Case closed, right? The truth is stored in that digital medium. No. When you look further, what do you find? A lifelong friendship. Betrayal. Months of tension. Threats. A boil over. Maybe the attacker truly believed his life was in danger and mistook the slightest movement as the beginning of a punch. Perhaps he just let his anger at the situation get the best of him. Maybe a mix of both. What's the objective truth here? And for whom is the truth valid? When you're a cop, understanding these nuances and truth is critical. And understanding the power those nuances can have is even more important. Not only when we have to discern whether or not someone's recollection of events is accurate, but when we lie to achieve a specific response. It's all something you become very familiar with. For me, in my investigations, in particular, this was especially true. Since my investigation of who I've dubbed as the Watcher, I had been assigned to numerous cases. Many were either uneventful or too out of our control to do much more than make an unofficial report. However, during this time, Officer Ryan somehow managed to get into the chief's good graces, while I was bouncing between the real crimes and looking at unusual occurrences. He, in turn, earned the opportunity to tag along on some of my investigations. In one instance, we even took a trip to what is easily the creepiest amusement park I've ever visited. I believe the name of it was Cheesy's World. Honestly, we could only spend about ten minutes there before mutually deciding to nope out and just tell the chief that everything was on the up and up. I'm not sure if Cheesy's is still around, but either way, I'm not really the guy to tell the story. The point being, Officer Ryan and I had spent what was becoming a considerable amount of time together, and admittedly, the guy was starting to grow on me. Because of that relationship, I asked for him personally on my next case. A local hospital had called about a man trespassing in the mental health ward. Supposedly, someone had been spotted inside the ward multiple times. One account from a patient even suggested that the man had been, quote, sitting on the ceiling. At first, these accounts weren't taken too seriously, but when one of the security guards spotted a naked man scale a wall and climb into a small vent in the ceiling, we got called. Typically, patrol officers respond to these types of calls. However, when information on the stranger accounts of the quote man made its way up the chain of command i was called in from an inhumanly loud scream to seemingly materializing into locked rooms my interest was immediately piqued along with my disgust when officer ryan and i pulled up to the hospital things were already in motion explanations for why we needed to evacuate the floor and bring in multiple officers were already given And on our arrival, we were escorted down a set of hallways that led into the mental health ward. The security guard escorting us referred to it as the old hospital. Apparently, it used to be the primary set of buildings. As this hospital decided to modernize and expand, they built a new set of buildings on top of the old. This was good for the hospital in general, but it left the older portion noticeably neglected. The first signs of this were apparent in the rickety elevator we took down to the mental health facility's main lobby. Admittedly, it was a little uncomfortable going down in an elevator that likely hadn't been serviced in who knows how long. The creaks and moans of the rusty lift only added to my growing paranoia. Officer Ryan made small talk with the guard as we descended. The guard mentioned how the hospital was storing an overflow of oxygen tank cylinders in the old hospital storage room. He usually made rounds to make sure that the tanks weren't compromised. During one of his rounds, he claimed to have seen who he referred to as, quote, the hermit eating a dead mouse. The story made my stomach churn a bit, but listening to the guard take comfort in Officer Ryan took my mind off the stress for a moment. I always thought it was fascinating how that guy seemed to be beloved by everyone. But when the doors opened back up to reveal a lobby that looked as though it hadn't been changed since the 60s, my stress level spiked way back up. Waiting patiently was Detective Evelyn Joss. Behind her were the two officers that I usually saw accompanying the Chief. Detective Joss's light brown hair was tied up into a bun. Her navy blue attire and dark makeup contrasted with her fair skin and soft freckles across her nose. And of course, she was scowling. "'Took you long enough to get here, Smith,' she said with a very detectable level of frustration. "'We've already cleared the floor because of the dangerous individual. "'I'm hoping that you won't make me do the rest of your job and actually assist in catching him.'" "'We can't all be track stars, Detective Joss,' I joked." Plus, we seem to have made it before the heat death of the universe, so by my account, we still have plenty of time to figure this out. You're welcome. She rolled her eyes and turned her attention towards Officer Ryan. Hey, Barry, how are you? Did you manage to find a new place for you and your wife? Officer Ryan nodded. Actually, we did. This new set of houses just finished getting developed about six miles north of here. We're thinking about moving in there. "'Wait, Barry,' I interjected. "'How didn't I know? Since when the hell are you two close?' "'He shrugged. "'We just talk sometimes, I guess. She's cool, man.' "'I looked back at Detective Joss with an eyebrow raised "'and saw a half-smile was being sent back in my direction. "'She then turned to the security guard and said, "'Thanks for bringing them down here, Davis. We'll take it from here. "'If you want to have guys waiting outside the elevator upstairs, that'd be fine, "'but we don't want you guys interfering with anything down here.' With a nod, he made his way back to the elevator and gave a simple wave as the doors closed in front of him. Wait, you want them waiting upstairs, I asked? How the hell are we going to get this guy out of here without them noticing? Detective Joss motioned for us to follow her. Without a word, she led us down a dark hallway that ended with a door that had a busted exit sign hanging over it. It leads to the back of the hospital. I'm thinking we can corral him through here so the rest of the staff don't see him. And then, wait, I said skeptically, this hospital is less than a mile from a major highway and you want to just send him outside? She exhaled sharply before continuing. No, assuming we can't kill him, we have a couple guys with trucks waiting in the back. Hopefully we can catch him and move him out of the city and into the woods somewhere to let him run off. We won't have much time, though. Apparently Chief has seen this guy before, and he's somewhat of an escape artist. Best we can hope for is out of sight, out of mind. (laughs) Out of sight, out of mind, I scoffed. Glad we're really looking out for the people. She shrugged. Yeah, well, I'd love to do more too, but we're not monster fighters, I know. Just still feels empty. Detective Joss went on to explain how the hermit has a tendency to fill any enclosed space. When exposed to the outside, he's likely dive right for the back of an empty truck. From there, she gave us a tour of the old hospital. There wasn't much to see, everything was confined to a small floor. We started with the main reception and living area. To its right was a sliding glass door leading to the terrace, and straight ahead, three hallways. The hallway furthest to the left led down to the patient rooms behind a locked door. The hallway in the middle contained the security station and a few more separated rooms further down. The last hallway was the most interesting. At first glance, all you'd see is a few locked doors that you could easily pass off as simple janitorial closets and a water fountain. Thinking back on the conversation I overheard Officer Ryan having with the security guard, the door at the end of the hallway provided the most intrigue. Inside, I found a number of oxygen tanks stacked on top of each other with other miscellaneous items surrounding them. While oxygen itself isn't flammable for those that don't know, it can be incredibly dangerous near flammable materials. Not to get into too much science, but as an oxidizer, it can cause an existing fire to spread much faster. Not to mention the fact that one pressurized tank exploding due to a rupture could cause some damage. 10 to 20 of them could be catastrophic. Feel free to correct me on the science, but either way, This certainly didn't jive with OSHA standards. Not only that, but there seemed to be a small hole in the ceiling. A point of entrance, perhaps? I snapped a couple pictures on my phone. I informed Officer Ryan and Detective Joss about my discovery, but they both largely brushed me off. Alright, Detective Joss began. Barry, I want you to be at the... Before she could finish, a voice that I assumed belonged to one of the officers assigned to watch over us came through her radio. Supposedly, he had heard a loud noise coming from the terrace, and he wanted to go investigate. He saw someone sitting outside. We dashed back to the main hall and found the same officer standing by the terrace door. Detective Joss went over to speak with him, but all I could focus on was the figure sitting in the fetal position outside. Though he had a large frame, he was skinny with a distended stomach. His head was probably twice as large as an average human head, but most of that seemed to be from his massive, forward-hanging brow. His scowl accentuated deep wrinkles, and thin, stringy black hairs fell over his beady eyes that were aimed at us with a deep-seated hatred. Yet, despite the disturbing look, he seemed to be otherwise human. It was hard not to wonder what this whole song and dance was for. Yes, trespassing is a crime, but evacuating an entire wing of the hospital and bringing us in here for one human man? It was odd. This could have easily been handled by a couple of patrol officers. I could tell Officer Ryan was feeling the same way, but Detective Joss was on edge. When she finally came over to talk, I almost laughed in her face. This is the guy, huh? I said with a smirk. Possibly homeless? The man obviously needs help but we brought out all of this just for him? She wasn't having it. Do not underestimate this man, Smith. I want you both sharp when we approach. That means be prepared to fire at a moment's notice. I scoffed. (laughs) Are you serious? I've seen a lot of fucked up shit as of late. I understand when there's a threat, but I'm not going to assume crazy until I see crazy. Don't you know how bad it would look if we came at an obviously unarmed human man with guns drawn for the heinous crime of SITTING? Could you imagine if one of us accidentally shot the guy? Yeah, Officer Ryan followed. You guys haven't technically seen him do anything wild, right? No reports of threats or actually assaulting anyone. Sure, the trespassing is bad, but he's just sitting there. If he went to the media about three cops pulling guns on him without real provocation, it's gonna look bad. She shook her head. Look, I'm not... I've done this enough to know. I understand where you're coming from, but I'm telling you, that split-second difference between unholstering your weapon and firing could be the difference between life and death. If he turns out to just be a guy, then who's going to believe... No! I shouted. That's absolutely not the standard we set. We are, or at least, we should be better than that. I've heard the stories too, but we can't make assumptions like that until we have the facts. Everyone went silent for a moment. The tension in the air between Detective Joss and me was palpable. In his usual fashion, Officer Ryan attempted to ease the situation. So, uh, two beats one? My math is usually pretty bad, but I'm pretty sure we win, so yay? No guns. Fine. Fine. Detective Joss said through clenched teeth before calling over the officer she was speaking with earlier. Murray, take a position where our friend can't see you. If anything happens, then you shoot to fucking kill. We could at least agree on that. I took point on the approach with my hand over my taser. Officer Ryan did the same while Detective Joss stood at my left with her hand hovering near her gun. When we opened the terrace door, there was a tangible feeling that we weren't wanted. The man didn't move a muscle or say a word, but it was as if his very presence was telling us to leave. Admittedly, I got a little choked up in trying to speak with him. Unfortunately, Officer Ryan didn't pick up on the hostile atmosphere and made the mistake of being the first to communicate. Hey, man, we got a call about you being here, and the hospital staff has informed us that they'd like you to leave the premises. "'If you need us to get you some clothes or take you somewhere, we'd love to—' "'No!' The hermit's gravelly voice left us stunned for a moment. The sound seemed to boom, but it appeared as though he was barely putting any force behind his words. I looked over to Detective Joss for a moment and found myself mimicking her, my hand now firmly placed over my gun. I was slowly becoming aware that maybe this guy really wasn't human— and that I had made a grave mistake insisting that we come at him without guns. It took Officer Ryan a moment to regain his composure. He let out a nervous laugh and tried continuing. I, uh, (laughs) sorry. Look, we can't really take no for an answer here. If the hospital staff wants you gone, then you gotta go. We'd really prefer if you just worked with us here to make it easy. No! His voice boomed again. This is my fucking home. Before I could even process what happened, he sprung forward with incredible speed. One moment, he was sitting on the grounds. The next, he was rolling around on the floor with Officer Ryan beating his face raw. Detective Joss already had her gun out, but I knew she wouldn't get a clear shot without risking shooting Officer Ryan. Instinctively, I yelled, don't shoot, while I dived for the hermit. "'tackling him to the concrete. "'Not only was the strength immense, "'it felt like his whole body was covered in some sort of oil "'that prevented me from getting a good grip. "'I had done some wrestling in my youth, "'but I was utterly unprepared for the grappling match that ensued. "'Eventually, he found his way on top, "'and I could see his massive hands about to swing down "'when a loud bang rang out, and then another, and then another.' Suddenly, I felt a river of pus wash over my face. When the pressure of him sitting on my chest lifted, I hoped to whatever deity may or may not be out there that Detective Jost had killed him. I received no such relief when I heard that same booming voice command that we leave his home immediately. Looking up, I caught him squirming his way into a vent that led back into the building. Though his whereabouts were absolutely a concern, my immediate attention was drawn to my bloodied partner lying just a few feet away. I scrambled to his side and the damage was apparent. Cuts, bruises, missing teeth, and a severely broken nose. Damn it, I shouted. Evelyn, help me get him to his feet. We managed to get Officer Ryan back inside and hand him off to Officer Murray to be taken upstairs and helped by hospital staff. It burned me up inside that I couldn't go with him. It was my call to go in without guns, squarely trained on the Hermit. Because of that stupid decision, Officer Ryan could have easily received permanent brain damage and likely would need plastic surgery. We had a job to do, but it was hard not to wallow in my own foolishness. Detective Joss was kind enough to give me some space and allow me to come to her. It took a few minutes to get myself back together. I found her waiting outside, smoking a cigarette. Since when are you a smoker, I asked. She flicked ashes and blew out a bit of smoke. I'm not. At least, not usually, but the more I go on these cases, the more I find myself lighting up one or two to help me think, or to just deal with the, you know. She turned towards me and held a lighter out. I'm trying to stop, so here. I don't have another one, so as long as you have it, I can't smoke. I accepted this gift and leaned next to her against the wall. So, we're going to find that thing and fill its body full of lead, right? She shook her head. I know you want revenge for what it did to Barry. Trust me, I've been where you're at before, but that's not going to work. The hell do you mean it won't work? He bled, or pussed, like a stuffed pig when you shot him. Between us two and the officer on standby, we easily have enough ammo to put him down. If not, then we go get bigger guns. Two of us... Officer Zhang there needs to guard the elevator. Besides, I think the shock of the moment made you miss something, Smith. I had to be within what? twenty feet of him? I shot the bastard three times with my service pistol. Three close shots. I was there, and and after the pus stopped leaking, no wound. This information froze me. I I, I don't understand. He was obviously hurt, how could there be no wound? She shrugged. You ever heard of self-healing fabrics? You can puncture them, but they can fix the hole right after. The bullets definitely went in, but you couldn't tell that by looking at them. If you stand right up after three hollow-point bullets to the head, how much damage do you really think they could have done? I think the most going in guns blazing would serve to do is annoy him. We need a legitimate solution. That was tough to hear. I wanted revenge for my friends, and I was finally sure that we had a way to kill a horror just this one time. It took me a moment, but I knew I had to resolve myself towards a different method. Okay, so what do we do then? Original plan, she said, placing a hand on my shoulder. I wanted Barry to operate the security station, but with him gone, I'll have to do it. Keep your radio on, and I'll tell you where on the floor I see him. If we can chase him around until he goes to the door leading to the trucks, then we should be okay. Kind of like leaving a fly out the window. Admittedly, I thought it was a horrible plan. I understood the general concept, but playing high stakes hide and seek with a super hermit sounded like a pretty dangerous proposition. The danger made itself immediately present when we found him standing at the end of the hallway with the security station. I pointed my gun in his direction and ordered him to stay still. He never broke eye contact as we spoke. You two are intruders in my home. You will leave or be punished. I will defend my property. There was a pause and, I shit you not, the fucker started climbing the wall like gravity was optional and slipped into another vent. The apparent breaking of physics didn't seem to bother Detective Joss in the slightest. As soon as he was gone, she went to work pulling up the security cameras. Once she got everything up, she reiterated the plan. Follow her directions and lead him out of the building. We knew that bullets could at least make it feel pain, and the threat of that should have been enough to corral him towards the truck. She remarked about how simple it was, and at first I thought she might be right. It took some time, but eventually we saw movement in the hallway containing the patient's rooms. This was it. As I walked towards my destination, pistol-aimed straight forward, it couldn't shake the growing feeling that this would be the furthest thing from simple. Making my way through the door, I had to take stock of my surroundings. Inside, the patients' rooms were open and situated on the right. Simultaneously, there was a mini-kitchen, small television, and nurse's desk, all in a small area on the opposite side. A lot to be compacted into an ugly-looking hallway, but ultimately empty. I'm not seeing anything, I said on my radio. Did he change locations? Negative. He ducked behind the nurse's station to your left, likely setting up an ambush, she replied. I methodically walked towards the counter, being sure to keep my back towards the rooms. My heart thumped in my chest and sweat starting to form on my brow. My mind was becoming flooded with all the ways this could go wrong. When I was level with the desk, I took a deep breath and pivoted towards the desk's entrance, screaming for that ugly bastard to get out here. Nothing. Peeking around the corner of the nurse's station, I didn't see anything. All it took was one inquisitive step forward for him to spring from his position inside a hollow compartment of the desk and tackle me to the ground. I immediately felt a sharp pain in my right shoulder. His gums had dislocated from his jaw and shot forward like a goblin, sinking sharp teeth into my flesh. My screams of pain only seemed to make him bite down harder. Luckily, I managed to keep hold of my gun in my left hand and fired a couple rounds into the first thing I could find. The pressure on my shoulder lifted and he reared back in pain, grabbing at his gut. I sprang up and used my good shoulder to ram him into an empty room and shut the door behind him. Luckily for me, one of the few things they had upgraded in the old hospital was the doors. They appeared to be badge locked, meaning unless a staff member came to let him out, he wasn't going anywhere. I was hopeful that that had given me some time to develop a new strategy, but his constant banging on the door made it hard to think. Keep smashing away, I yelled. You're not getting out of there unless I want you to. Right on cue, he went silent. He inspected me for a moment and then pressed his face up to the small window on the door to speak. And the only reason you'd want me out is so that you can try and scare me out of my home, right? I... What? Your plan, stupid man, he stated matter-of-factly. You think that you can make me abandon my home? You will run out of bullets. It will hurt me, yes, but if I stand my ground just long enough, you and your friends won't be able to hurt me. I know I can take the pain, but can you survive having your jaw ripped off? He paused to spit a yellow fluid at the glass. I'm gonna hunt you down first. His threat made me take a step back. He fucking knew. This whole time, We would have chased him around until the point of exhaustion, and then he would have struck. Detective Joss's voice came over the radio. Smith, I see you have him contained there. Listen, you need to... He knows. What? He knows the plan. We need to try something else. I've got him locked up here, but I... Smith, look down and get the hell out of there. Confused, I did as I was told and saw two thin fingers beginning to slide out from under the door. Soon after, his hand followed. I didn't have much time to think. I sprinted towards the exit and shut the door behind me. Glancing back through the window in the door, I could see his arm had already made it through. Three options. The exit? No, he simply wouldn't follow me outside. I could run towards Detective Joss. We could at least hurt him together, but if this guy was basically bulletproof, then we'd eventually be defenseless which left one real option. The beginnings of a plan I didn't entirely trust started to form in my head. Another quick glance back showed I was almost out of time. He was pulling his legs out from under the door and I knew he'd be gunning right for me. Thought on the radio. Detective Joss, he's coming towards your location. He wants revenge for that gunshot earlier. Take a position outside by the truck. She replied with a simple copy, just in the nick of time. The man was free and barreling towards the door. I sprinted towards the open storage closet. Three of my steps must have been equal to one of his because I could hear him closing the distance with lightning speed. Despite the pain, I opted to dive for the opening, spinning around as I landed and shooting a warning shot in his direction to hopefully slow him down. It did the trick. The bullet missed, but I knew he didn't want to take unnecessary damage. He ducked behind a water fountain, leaving enough time for me to get to my feet, pull out the lighter Detective Joss had given me and point my gun to one of the oxygen tanks. Hey, you bastard, get out here. He raised up slowly and walked towards me. He was ruby red and I could tell from the look on his face that he was absolutely livid. You stupid man, you've put yourself in a corner. I'm not afraid of a little fire. I spat on the ground. I don't give a damn about a little fire. Lot of flammable shit in here though, don't you think? What do you think happens if I start shooting oxygen tanks while I have this flame lit? Admittedly, I wasn't even sure if the science was correct, but my bluff seemed to make him take pause. What do you plan to do? He said cautiously. You're obviously an intelligent guy. More intelligent than a lot of the things I've dealt with. But let me put this in terms you'll understand. "'Oxygen tank plus bullet plus fire equals boom. "'And when boom happens in an old space with flammable stuff, "'well, I don't know if you can survive a fiery explosion, "'but it doesn't matter because your precious home won't.' "'No!' he shouted, throwing his hand forward. "'You'll die too. You wouldn't do this. Not to my home.' "'He was partially correct. "'I wouldn't risk hurting the people in the hospital "'if this crazy plan would have even worked.' but that didn't matter so long as he believed I would I don't give a damn about your home either you kill me or the explosion does honestly I think I prefer this death over whatever the hell you do plus it'd be way more satisfying to know that you don't get shit after this I squeezed my finger on the trigger just a bit you take another step closer and I swear to the universe stop he screamed don't destroy my home what do you want look I'm a fair guy There are some new, empty houses six miles north of here. I'm not sure how you'd plan to get there, but they're empty. So let's make a deal. You can't have this home, but maybe you can find yourself one over there. You do that, and we'll leave you to your own devices. He contemplated my offer. I go there, and you stay away from my new home? I nodded in response. Seconds passed in silence. The sense that I'd have to readjust from my bluff seemed to become more real every moment but eventually after what felt like minutes of tension the hermit took off in the other direction without a word i took the most enormous sigh of relief i'd had in my life and flopped to the ground grabbing my shoulder the pain seemed to be coming on more intensely now detective joss's voice came through on the radio smith we saw him come outside but the little shit went down a storm drain on the sidewalk Eventually, I had to fill Detective Joss and the chief in on our conversation. She was displeased that I essentially just shifted the problem somewhere else and absolutely livid that I changed the plan without telling her. But ultimately, she was proud of me. Chief was more outwardly appreciative of my quick thinking. This way, we knew exactly where he'd be and we could prepare for his presence. And dealing with him in an empty house seemed far more ideal than dealing with him in a full hospital. Despite all I had been through and the loose ends that needed to still be tied up, there was one thing at the forefront of my mind. By the time I finished everything with the chief and the hospital staff, Officer Ryan already had a room, but I wasn't allowed to see him, at least not officially. I snuck past most of the staff to get to Officer Ryan's room. The ones that saw me didn't ask too many questions given my badge. He was in rough shape and had already been put on some heavy drugs. But he was at least coherent, which was an excellent sign. Officer Ryan, um, Barry, I began. Look, I'm sorry, man. I messed up. I should have known the danger and had us prepared, and all he could muster was a weak shh. The gauze and swelling made it hard for him to talk, the words coming out a bit muffled. I could only imagine how hard it was for him to find the energy... But he fought through the pain and simply said, Don't blame yourself, man. You did the right thing. I nodded and bent down to put my hand on his shoulder. Knowing I should let him rest, I began to make my way outside, but a weak call stopped me at the door. What's up? I asked, spinning around. Don't call me Barry, man. It's weird as shit. I was trying to be respectful, you blonde bastard, but alright, Officer Ryan it is, I replied, smiling. He gave me a thumbs up. Knowing he'd be okay, I finally made my way outside. The night had been awful, and I was more than ready to go home and sleep off the trauma. This is why I was less than thrilled to see a hospital staff member running after me in the parking lot. The woman looked to be in her late 20s, maybe early 30s. She was on the shorter side with dark brown hair. Badge signified that she was a nurse working at the mental health hospital which immediately suggested that this would be another situation where someone would ask questions I really didn't want to have to answer. I didn't even get the chance for a proper greeting before she was standing in front of me. You were one of the officers dealing with the guy from earlier, right? She asked in an accusatory tone. I, I was, yes. Do you need something? She looked at me like I was crazy. Did I need something? Are you serious? You know what went down in there and you're just going to play it off? Not exactly sure what you're referring to, but if you have information you'd like to share, I can give you my bullshit, she shouted while pointing a finger in my face. You don't think I know about that man in the old hospital? A human man that scales vertical walls and fit into tiny spaces a child couldn't make through? Or that fucking voice of his? Your chief comes through and says he was just a homeless man living in the building and expects us to believe it. Uh, no! They didn't believe me when I said I saw him. Do you know how terrifying it is to have that thing stare at you from down the hall, just inside the camera's blind spot, only to disappear when you go and get help? She knew. I wasn't going to convince her that what she saw was normal, but still, I needed to know where exactly she was going with this. I agree that what you saw was strange, ma'am. But I'm not sure there's a rational explanation for all of this. With him in custody, we'll eventually find those answers. But what good does telling me all this do to you? She scoffed. (laughs) What good does it do me? Depends. Getting national media attention for a fucking monster stalking our hospital could bring me some solace. Especially if I knew the police lying about what they saw were grilled by every major outlet in the world. Or... You could just tell me what the hell is going on. I knew I couldn't lie my way out of this. The only thing I could really think to do was try and divert the conversation. You know, storing a bunch of oxygen tanks in an unsafe manner is definitely a breach of OSHA standards. I think the news would be far more interested in that than a silly monster story. I waved my phone in her face to emphasize my point. Especially with evidence. But this didn't seem to face her in the slightest. You think I care? That security guard is a 19 year old kid. Don't you think I could convince him to pull up a footage from today? Hell, I'm sure he'd love to be on TV to say what he's seen. And he's not the only one. Yeah, the oxygen tanks look bad, but which do you really think is gonna be a bigger story? Why push this? Why do you wanna know so badly? Because, she shouted. My sister is a patient at the old hospital. What if he had hurt her? What if he had hurt my coworkers or me? I think, as someone directly involved, I deserve to at least know. She took a moment to breathe. I'll make this easier. You tell me, and I promise I won't speak a word of it to anyone else. Just please tell me what's happening. Honestly, at that point, I was done emotionally exhausted physically hurt and just so fed up with the lies who the hell was i to hide something like that why should i have to pretend that what we saw was normal or that it wasn't out there waiting for someone else to hurt we're not monster hunters i get it but is telling the truth too much to ask or at least my version of the truth at least this one time that night i made the decision to tell her i swore her to secrecy I informed her about everything. Honestly, I think it ends up being catharsis for me more than anything, but I like to think we both walked away feeling better, or at least with a greater understanding. She didn't thank me, not that she needed to. She was owed my truth. Everyone was. And as she walked away, I reflected on what I had done. The fact that there was so much we still didn't know, more monsters, more secrets, more things hidden, just outside where we can see. I can only hope that she used that knowledge to protect herself. Our next story is called A Paranormal Hunter's Tale. I've been an investigator and hunter of the paranormal for longer than I care to remember. Studying lore, protecting the innocent, and destroying malicious entities are just a few of the job's many requirements. In my younger years, training day in and day out with my uncle, I thought we were heroes and that I had the greatest job in the world. Now that he's dead, along with most of my friends and family, I'm not sure. The monotony of endless travel and cheap hotels, the guilt of not being able to protect my loved ones when they needed me most, the burden of saving others, it's more weight than I ever thought would rest on my shoulders. More weight than most men can bear to carry. But enough about that. You don't need to hear some sob story. This isn't about me. This is about my latest adventure, one I almost didn't come back from. A few months ago, while digging through various news articles and police reports for choice words like bizarre and unexplainable, I came upon a tabloid piece about a man, Jack, on a business trip. He apparently became hysterical and attacked his boss, Coulter, in a hotel lobby, When asked why, he simply said that room 371, the room Coulter was assigned at the front desk, was no ordinary room, and anyone staying there was in, quote, grave danger. He said he was trying to protect his boss by explaining the situation while pulling him away and out of the hotel. Coulter resisted and fell to the floor, breaking his arm. He didn't press charges, but, needless to say, their business trip and relationship was no more. Normally, I stay away from these kinds of things. More than not, they tend to be the product of nutcases. This one had all the makings of an overtired, overworked man on the verge of mental breakdown. Still, it piqued my interest. With no other pressing cases on the table, I decided to look into it, if for no other reason than to placate my curiosity. A quick bit of research revealed that the Covewood Inn, the hotel where Jack and Coulter were staying, only had two floors with room numbers ranging from 101 to 256. There was not, nor had there ever been, a room 371. This wasn't enough to build a case, but it was strange nonetheless. I couldn't find any contact information for Jack, but I found an email for Coulter on a site dedicated to networking for investors and business leaders. He responded, but only gave me a brief account of the incident, not wishing to discuss specifics. In his summary, however sparse, even he described being handed a keycard for Room 371 before Jack grabbed him. The plot was thickening next order of business was to call the hotel i did this on three separate occasions spread out across the week with three different aliases and spoke with three different staff members ranging from entry level to management positions in the hunting business this is known as the rule of three provided you can sift through the bullshit and identify the potential truths within it allows for a higher chance of information retrieval without raising suspicion It works even better if you can act and change your voice accordingly. Call number one was to the hotel manager. As I suspected, no matter how persistent I was, she would not comment on the matter. Call number two was made to lower level management in the form of Tammy, a shift supervisor. She wasn't working on the day in question, but had heard a lot about it from coworkers. She said Jack was a lunatic, kept screaming about a list of rules in his hotel room. I wanted to pry for more but we were disconnected. I'm fairly certain I heard the manager come over and scold Tammy before the line went dead. Call number three was to the front desk. For this one, I decided on a backhanded approach. I would attempt to book the non-existent room 371 to see if the clerk would bring up the incident on his own. Upon dialing, the voice that met my ear was steady and emotionless. Thank you for calling the Covewood Inn How may we be of service? Is it possible to book a specific room? Of course, sir. Which room would you like to stay in? Room 371? One moment. There was a brief pause and that faint sound of tapping at a keyboard. Room 371 is available tonight and every night going forward. When would you like to book your stay? Impossible. Did I call the right place? Was my information wrong? Uh, so you're saying room 371, that's 371, is available? Yes, sir, tonight and every night. And this is the Covewood Inn in Massachusetts? Indeed it is. And your hotel room has two floors with room numbers 101 to 256, right? Correct, sir. How then is there a room 371? There was another pause, this one considerably longer than the previous... Thank you for calling the Covewood Inn, where we always hope you enjoy your stay. Goodbye. Click. We'll all be damned. Despite my doubts, it looked like I found my case. I just needed to do a little more research before going out on a full-fledged hunt. Most entities travel. It's doubtful that this one struck once and then moved on. If I could find its signature and establish a pattern, I could probably pick up its scent and predict its next attack. All I had to go off of was Tammy's secondhand account of Jack screaming about a list of rules. That would have been my starting point. And down the rabbit hole I went. Five days of non-stop research and I stumbled upon the motherlode of paranormal activity. Dozens of accounts of mystery survival guides left in apartments, hotels, and workplaces. Strange sets of rules with a sizable body count left in their wakes. My next move was clear. I had to call Al. Al was an old soul who had been around the paranormal block more than a few times. His hunting days were behind him, but he was a walking encyclopedia of knowledge. If anyone could shed some light on these lists, it was him. Al's recognizably scruffy voice cut through the receiver after just one ring. Henry, you bastard, how the hell have you been? Glad to know you're still alive after all this time. Would it kill you to pick up the phone once in a while? I know, Al. I'm sorry. Caught up in the gig. You know how it is. How's your heart? Still giving you trouble? Of course, of course, but you and I both know I've been through worse hell than a few clogged arteries. To what do I owe this call anyway? I'm sure you didn't reach out to discuss my declining health. I've uncovered something big, Al, and I need your help. Must be big if you're calling me instead of diving in headfirst with no parachute like you usually do. Al was referring to a particular case we worked on years ago, his last one in the field. I was a foolish and cocky son of a bitch. We followed a bad tip I received from a less than reputable source and found ourselves smack dab in the middle of a dense forest surrounded by a coven of dreamwalkers. They're nasty creatures with an appetite for children's nightmares, only attacking the waking under the light of a full moon, which just so happened to be the case on the night we went out there. It was a trap, and we walked right into it. We managed to kick and claw our way out, but just barely. Al took most of the onslaught. I carried him out to the main road, where we were picked up by a passing truck and brought to the hospital. The physical damage was healed, but Al was never the same after that. He never said as much, but I swear he blamed me for what happened. Even if he didn't, I did. I can't ever forgive myself for that one. There are these strange survival guides being left in random locations across the country and they're racking up quite the body count. I don't know if it's... (sighs) Al interjected with a heavy sigh. I know exactly what you're talking about. You should probably swing by my place to talk more about it. Al, you're across the border, over 300 miles where I'm... Click. Damn it. Al was a stubborn man and a lonely one at that. He probably just wanted a visit, and I couldn't really blame him. After all, I was the reason he turned into an old hermit in the first place. Whether it was the guilt over breaking his spirit years ago or my lack of options, I made that drive and crossed state lines on my way to see Al. If anything, it would at least be good for him. It was just how I remembered it. A perfect little cottage tucked away in the middle of nowhere, far away from the outside world. Not the house you would expect a hunter to live in, but that's how Al liked it. Small and quaint. I think it reminded him of his late wife, Ellie. She used to talk about a dream home like this one, if memory serves. Al rushed out to greet me. There you are, you bastard. Get over here. He pulled me in for a bear hug. I reciprocated, happy to see him in person for a change. All right, Henry, let's go in and talk shop. We dislocated, and Al brought me inside where I sat on the sofa. He brought me over a TV dinner, a common meal in our trade, and a beer before sitting in the chair opposite me. Okay, Al, what do you know? This is big. You were right about that. But he threw me a concerned look, indicating I might not like what he had to say. Come on, Al. I drove hundreds of miles to hear this. It better be good. To find good. Out with it, Al. Good news is... I know what we're dealing with. I swear, the man dragged out simple responses just to keep me from leaving too soon. That or he enjoyed dangling fresh meat over my head just to watch me swipe at it and miss. Probably a little bit of both. And the bad news? The truth is I've been tracking this thing for years. You're not going to be able to catch it, kid. It's course is completely random. By the time a headline shows up, she's already moved on to another town with no trail of breadcrumbs to follow. She? Yeah, she. Could be a he. But you and I know males are pretty rare. It's a witch, Henry. And a powerful one at that. Al went on to explain that the lists of rules were agreements between the witch and her victims. Contracts that needed no signatures to be, quote, legally binding. Once the rules are read and comprehended by the victim, the agreement can take effect. If one or more rules are broken, a supernatural calamity will befall the victim, usually resulting in their death, at which time part of their life force is absorbed by the witch. With each soul piece she takes, she becomes more powerful. Why do folks break rules in the first place? It's all part of the design. Most of the rules are simple spell traps dependent on time triggers. To most people, it's nonsense. Even I, with my vast knowledge of the paranormal, would be hard-pressed to, quote, not use the bathroom after 11.22 p.m., just because I found a list in my motel dresser. How do you know all this, Al? I learned most of it from a man who stayed at an Airbnb near Cape Cod. He found a list and broke each and every rule, but still managed to make it out of there alive. He even gave me the damn thing. What? You mean you have it right now? You've been holding out on me this whole time? Al walked over to his desk, opened up a drawer and pulled out a sheet of paper. He then walked over to me and tossed it on my lap. It won't do you much good. I've examined it more times than I can count. It was beautiful in a morbid sort of way. I had been studying the case for so long, it felt amazing to have a piece of the story in my hands. A physical piece of evidence I can inspect with my eyes. Feels different from normal paper, wouldn't you say, Al? It's papyrus. I imagine the other lists are made from it, too. Necessary for the spell. I turned it over and noticed a dark splotch near one of the bottom corners. Al, what's this? A stain, I guess. Probably wine spilled from the last guy who had it. That wasn't wine, I was sure of it. I raced over... To Al's bookshelf and grabbed a copy of *Demonic Dealings* by Jack Grovewood and began flipping through the pages. Al, what do we know about witch deals? Aside from these ones, they're verbal contracts between a witch and a human. One wish granted in exchange for a piece of their soul. Why? What are you getting at? I found the page I wanted and scoured the text until I came upon an image. Aha! I held up the picture of two hands dripping red over a chalice. And how are the deals sealed, Al? With blood from both parties. We know all of this, Henry. This is different. She doesn't need permission and there's no wish granted. You break a rule in your toast. That's it. Clearly, this type of contract doesn't need blood from the victim. But what if it still needs the witch's blood to bind the soul piece to her when it's done? I held up the list and pointed to the dark spot. Al thought it over for a moment before it sank in. You genius son of a bitch! Are you saying we have the witch's blood right here? That's exactly what I'm saying, Al. But what does that matter? We can't cast a summoning spell without fresh blood. No older than two months. I received this ages ago. I know, but there's no statute of limitations on blood packs. That's how ghosts are able to make deals with demons, witches, and the like. If we create our own list with identical ink and paper and smear some of this blood onto it, it should work the same and bind the witch to the deal. When we break the rules, she'll have to show up to collect. Then, well, we kill her. Al shot me a dirty look. Are you insane? Another one of Henry's misguided tightrope walks? I'm glad to see this one. We don't know the conditions of the spell. There could be more to it than this. You want to risk it backfiring? Or worse, it actually working and us getting ourselves killed by the most powerful witch we've ever gone up against? As the words rolled off his tongue, I sensed the excitement in his voice. He was dying to work another case after being on Hunter's leave all these years. Al, are you in or not? He turned his head for a moment and then turned back to meet my gaze. You bet I am. Another week of research and gathering materials later, and we had what we needed. Witch-killing instruments, stakes soaked in the Dead Sea and welding torches, and a new list of rules uniquely equipped for Al's cottage. All lights off by 10.41 p.m. Leave the bedroom door closed at all times. Do not step outside after sunset. If anyone knocks at the front door after 3.45pm, do not answer it. If your television set is on, do not tune in to channel 9. After spreading a sample of blood from the previous list on the back corner, we got to work breaking as many rules as we could. Twelve hours passed. We left the lights on all night, opened the bedroom door, Turned the TV to Channel 9, which was just plain static, and walked outside after sunset. Then we waited for an inevitable knock at the door. It never came. We waited and waited and waited, sitting on the sofa with stakes and torches in hand, but there was no activity. None whatsoever. Even without the knocking, something should have happened. We had broken four of the five rules. At 2 o'clock in the morning, Al turned to me and shook his head. Looks like it was a bust, kid. Just as I was about to swallow my failure and admit defeat, a gust of wind pushed the front door open and a clean-cut man in his 50s, gray hair, gray mustache, waltzed in with a smile on his face. It looked as though it was a male witch after all. Hello, boys. Looking for me? Al and I raced over and pushed our stakes through him. There was no effect. We then held our torches up and attempted to burn his skin. Again, no reaction. This was not good. With a flick of his wrists, the man was able to swing us through the air and pin us against opposite walls via an unseen force. No spell recited, just pure powerful magic. Is that any way to treat a guest? "'We tried to break free, but it was no use. "'I didn't have to show up, you know. "'Using my blood was a good idea, "'but your list was voided the moment the ink touched the page. "'Without my handwriting, that thing's useless.' "'He cackled as we squirmed. "'I just couldn't resist seeing this for myself. Two humans meddling in my affairs, "'attempting to draw me out of hiding. "'Whatever did you think you would accomplish?' He shut the door behind him, walked over, and sat down at the sofa where we had previously been seated. And the stakes and fire! What a great laugh that was! You know, as a powerful witch, I can ward myself from just about anything. With enough soul shards, you can pretty much render yourself invincible, and I have plenty to spare. What do you want? I screamed, impatient as ever. Al looked at me, wide-eyed, almost as if to say, What the hell do you think you're doing? Punishment, of course. You may not have broken the rules of one of my actual contracts, but that doesn't mean I can't dole out some just desserts. Just then, there was a knock at the door. What's this? the witch said in a delighted tone. It looks as though we have more guests. Please, come in. The door swung open and two figures walked in, two figures I recognized. It was none other than my uncle and Al's wife. They walked over to us and the witch released his hold on us. Aren't you happy to see your loved ones back from the dead? Without warning, their forms changed. Their fingernails changed to claws that bent and curved towards the carpet. Their mouths opened at unnatural angles, revealing rows of sharp teeth that protruded outward finally their eyes met at the center of their heads creating a single pool of yellow light swirling in itself a life all of its own then they attacked al and i jumped and darted around the room but it was no use they were too fast and their arms too long no matter what we did they kept on pulling us in and tearing away at our flesh bit by bit before long we were both being tightly squeezed in their arms Our pained cries echoing through the house. Oh, what's wrong? Don't you humans live for tender embraces? It doesn't get any more loving than this. Just as our spines were about to break, Al did the unthinkable. Wait, I want to make a deal. All at once, the creatures loosened their grip and the witch spoke, just as surprised as I was. Oh, now that's something I didn't expect. Tell me, Al, what did you have in mind? A piece of your soul for your safety? Sorry, but that just isn't worth it. I'd rather see you bleed. Al looked over at me as a single droplet rolled down his cheek. Let the kid go and you can take me now. The whole damn soul, it's yours. The creatures vanished and the witch's face lit up. Al, what are you doing? You can't. The witch put his fingers together, and my mouth was clamped shut. Sorry, kid, I'm getting too old for this. I'm tired. My wife's gone. My daughter's gone. You're the only family I have left. The witch chimed in. You have yourself a deal. Al looked over to me one last time with a smile. At this point, my face was soaked in tears. I never blamed you. I may not be your dad, but I would have been proud to call you my son. And with that, they disappeared, and I never saw them again. I fell to the floor, breathless. It was over. There was nothing I could do. Somehow, some way, that witch will die. I will bleed his corpse, rip apart the flesh, bury the bones, and salt the earth if I have to. And I'll tell you what, I'm going to save Al while I'm at it. Whatever it takes, mark my words. Well, folks, that's it. If you are a Patreon member, you got to hear an additional story, and I truly hope that you enjoyed it. As always, if you have any suggestions or requests for types of stories, please let me know. Otherwise, I'll catch you next time. Keep it creepy. Bye.